It's kind of nice to be able to walk to church this morning. Uh, I just live down the street here, and gosh, it's been ages since I've been here with you, but thanks for the opportunity to come and share God's Word with you this morning. But this past six, seven months have been rather difficult times for me. I think in this past six or seven months, I've participated in more funerals, visited the hospital more often, uh, not for myself, but to visit other people, and just had a lot of friends that have been sick. And this past six months, one of the things I've also had an opportunity, I guess you call it, was to say goodbye to my father and participate in funerals of people that I've personally known. And all these things kind of made me think about death, but also about life. And, you know, one of the things that I thought about is, gosh, what would people say at my funeral? And I'm thankful that I haven't attended one funeral, and that is the one for myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here this morning, but I'm still alive and kicking. But I'm wondering, what would they say about me? And it made me think about my own life, what my life is about, what keeps me ticking, what's on my heart. But also, what's on God's heart? Obituaries. You know, I didn't know that there was a whole page in the newspaper dedicated to obituaries. And I was wondering, what would my obituary say? And I thought I'd read a few, just a real few obituaries. Hopefully, this won't be written about me. This one's Ruth E.'s obituary. And from August 28, uh, 1927, she was born. She passed away on September 7, 2008, and it says this. She passed away due to complications resulting from her children making her old before her time. <laughs> well, that's kind of been. It goes on to say this at the bottom. Ruth was adamant that people use the occasion of her passing to remember and celebrate her life. In lieu of formal funeral proceedings or viewing hours, she requested that those who remember and cared about her share both a special memory and a drink in her honor, preferably Bud Light Lime, or if that's not available, gasoline or floor wax. I guess Ruth was a real funny person. Here's another one. This is about Fred Arthur Clark, who had tired of reading, a, and, you know, he passed away. And at um, the funeral, this is what they said. When his family was asked what they remember about Fred, they finally recalled how Fred never peed in the shower on purpose. He died at this hospital and sadly was deprived of his final wish. And this is what it said about his final wish. His final wish was to be run over by a beer truck on the way to the liquor store to buy booze for a double date to include his wife, Rush Limbaugh, and Ann Coulter to crash an ACLU cocktail party. I don't know. It's kind of weird obituaries, right? Anyway, uh, you know, it's made me think about my life and what would somebody write about me? About you? And hopefully it's not something kind of weird like this. I found these online, by the way. I just typed in funny obituaries and that's what you get. So, my life. If your heart was exposed, what would it reveal? Because this last, I guess, several months you've been looking at this topic of decent exposure, well, what would my heart expose look like? 
What do you believe about God? What's in your heart? And, and that's kind of like what we want to look at today. And isn't it interesting that death makes us look at life? Because in chapter 18, that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, Rob has already talked a little about what's been happening in this passage. Turn to John chapter 18. And we're going to look at verse 28 to 40 this morning. A little review. This is a critical time in Jesus' life. He had had three years of ministry. When we come to chapter 18, we find that he's betrayed. A little background. He's betrayed by Judas, who sells him, tells him where he's meeting. We have a desertion that when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples scattered. Those who were his followers left him. And we have one guy who was probably one of his best friends, his key follower, say three times, I don't know this guy. That's Peter. Then we have in 18, several trials. So realize that when Jesus was put on trial, not just one, not just two, but several trials. In fact, there's a religious trial, which really a deceptive religious trial. It happened in the middle of the night. And Jesus appeared before Annas and then Caiaphas, one who was a former high priest, and one was the present high priest. Then moving on in chapter 18, into chapter 19, Jesus' death. Now here's something interesting I'd like you to look at, that as Jesus' death uh, becomes eminent, you notice some different things in this, and this is kind of something I've observed. In fact, today, I'm kind of going to be sharing a little of the things that I've seen in this passage. First of all, 18.4, it says this, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Now, looking at his death, it says this, Knowing all that was going to happen to him, he does this. You see, his death, didn't surprise him. He knew what was coming up. Goes on to say, in verse 32, this happened, the trial and everything, that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. So even though we see a lot of chaos in chapter 18, realize it doesn't surprise Jesus. He knew what was coming. And it's interesting that his death was also something he understood. Several times, as you have been looking at the book of John, it says, when Jesus is lifted up, when a son of man is lifted up, these things will happen. Now, I found very fascinating that the Romans' way of executing people and the Jewish way of indicating, the Jewish people's way of, of uh, executing somebody were different. For the Jewish people, the way they executed somebody was by stoning. Now, had they tried to stone Jesus? I mean, you've been looking through the whole Gospel of John. Had they tried to stone him? Several times. In fact, they, they stoned somebody in Acts, a guy named Stephen. Back in chapter 8, what did he, he try to stone? They tried to stone this lady caught in adultery. And so realize that the Jewish people, their way of executing was by stoning. And had they tried to stone Jesus before? Several times. But they failed every time. Now, what was their way 
the Romans executed people? By crucifixion. And isn't that interesting? Because all along, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be lifted up. But when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw people to myself. See, God knows what's going to happen. He's in control. I don't know where you are in your life today, right now. But I know God knows what's happening to me. He knows what's happening in your life. He's still in control. So let's look at a a few points here. We're going to look at man's heart, God's heart, our heart. So if you have uh, your outlines handy and you want to write down those three blanks, you can write them down right off the back. Man's heart, God's heart, our heart. That's what we're going to look at today. Let's look first of all at man's heart. Because in this passage, it reveals what's in some people's hearts. Now maybe this is not your heart. Maybe you can't relate to this, but it might be the heart of some other people that you know. Man's heart. And we're going to look at different people. First of all, let's look at the religious leaders. Chapter 18, verse 28 to 29. And let me read that for you. So Jesus had been tried by the religious authorities. Then they're brought before Pilate. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas, the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat of the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and started dialoguing with them. Interesting, this is what I noticed. Some people's hearts like the religious leaders. And this is how I'd summarize the religious leaders of the time. You can be religious, and they're very religious, even sincere. But you could be sincerely wrong. See, the religious leaders, they were very meticulous in following the law. They were meticulous in the way they worshipped God or the way they thought they were worshipping God. They kept the letter of the law. And they were very sincere. And I've met a lot of people who are very sincere in their religious belief. But you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Look at what it says here about them. So they brought Jesus from Caiaphas to the Roman governor, Pilate. It was early in the morning, but it says this, to avoid ceremony and cleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. See, to enter the area or the realm of what they called Gentiles was to defile or dirty themselves. And if they did that, then they couldn't eat of the Passover. Now, here's the irony of the situation. They weren't willing to defile themselves to keep the religious law, but they're willing to participate in what is judicial murder because that's what actually ultimately happened. Jesus was crucified. So on one hand, they keep all these religious laws. They, They do all these things. On the other hand, they had no conscience about putting an innocent man to death. Religious leaders. And as you read on, Pilate goes on in verse 29. So Pilate came to them because they wouldn't go to him. Pilate came out and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? And notice their response. There was a little hostility between the religious leaders and a Roman official, particularly Pilate. If he were not a criminal, they replied, 
we would not have handed him over to you. Kind of a arrogant, disrespectful answer to him. They asked, he asked them, what charge are you bringing against this man? And their reply is, hey, if this guy wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. Kind of a disrespectful tone with this Pilate. Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But here you kind of get a glimpse into the religious leader's hearts. Pilate says, take him yourself, judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Two people, Pilate, religious leaders. They come to him. They bring Jesus along. And their whole purpose, execute Jesus, have him crucified. Now, what had Jesus done up to this time? We've been looking at the book of John here on Sunday mornings. Jesus had performed miracles. Had they seen him? Yes. Jesus taught them. Had they heard his teachings? Yes. Had Jesus done a lot of good works? Given sight to the blind, healed the lame, even raised somebody from the dead. See, they saw all these things, but they still rejected him. And you might know people like that yourself. That if Jesus came out in front of them and did something, they'd either try to explain it away or totally reject it. You see, there's some people's heart that's just totally hard. And no matter what you say, no matter what happens, even if God were to heal them of some sickness, they simply will refuse Jesus. That's a religious leaders. You can be religious, even sincere, but be sincerely wrong. Let's look at Pilate. What was Pilate like? Well, this is kind of... It was hard for me to kind of put it into a concise statement, but this is my best attempt at kind of summarizing Pilate's heart. Peer pressure, a majority opinion, is no excuse for not doing right. Peer pressure, a majority opinion, is no excuse for not doing right. So they bring Jesus before Pilate, and several times you see this one statement, I find no basis for these charges. Look at verse 38. The latter part of verse 38. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now look over to chapter 19, verse 4 at the end. Same thing. Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And reading on down, the same thing again. I find no basis for a charge against him. At the end of verse 6. So when something is repeated in Scripture, that means it's kind of like highlighted. Three times, Pilate says the same thing. I find no charge. No basis. This guy's innocent. In fact, Pilate didn't even want to try him in the first place. Remember what happened at the beginning? Hey, if he's a criminal, you guys take care of him. I find this guy innocent. Over and over and over again in this passage, Pilate is trying to get out of convicting Jesus. But finally, 
we have this discussion between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate then went back inside, verse 34, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Is that your own opinion, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about it? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people, your chief priests, who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent any arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place and goes on to talk about this. After this discussion, Pilate's conclusion. Innocent. Innocent. He goes on to try to free Jesus, but he doesn't succeed. And so, yes, maybe this guy, maybe Pilate was pressured to make this decision. In fact, they go on to say, hey, listen, if you don't try this guy who calls himself king, you're no friend of Caesar the king. And so maybe Pilate was thinking, man, I don't want that to happen. I'm kind of in the bind. And so to be pragmatic and to be expedient, I'm just going to have Jesus crucified. See, he knew the right thing, but he did what was expedient, had Jesus crucified. Pilate, over and over again, says the same statement. In fact, he's not done yet. He thought of this. Okay, okay, I know of a custom. And in this custom, during this Passover feast, I'm to release somebody. Why don't I use this type of situation to get out of executing Jesus? And so Jesus is brought in verse 38. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis to charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Now, do you want me to release this Jesus, King of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. And so instead of having Jesus released, they had Barabbas released. And the irony of the situation is this. What was the charge that Barabbas was guilty of? If you read on, it says that, yeah, he was a, a robber. But it also says here he had taken part in a rebellion, a rebellion against the government. But what did they charge Jesus with? Yeah, generally the same thing. They thought of him also as a rebellion, a rebel. If he was a king, maybe they thought he'd lead a rebellion against the government. But Jesus was innocent. Barabbas was guilty. But who was freed? You see, that's the irony of this whole situation. They had Barabbas released instead of Jesus. You see, I found that some people's hearts are just hard. They aren't interested in knowing the truth. Some people are more like Pilate. They did what was more practical, what was easier, what was convenient. And so my question is, do either of these two guys represent your heart today? You're probably not, not like the religious leaders because you're here. But maybe you're like Pilate, more pragmatic, 
You do what is practical. And sometimes you might be guilty of doing what is easier versus doing what is right. And I was thinking about this today, and I'm walking over from the other side of Branham Lane, and I'm crossing the Almond Expressway, and you know, on one hand, I can do what's easiest, there's no cars coming, I can just walk across the street. But I was thinking about this passage, and, and I thought, oh, man, I've got, I got to practice what I preach. And so instead of crossing the street, when there's no cars coming, I have to wait for the whole light to go around to turn green. So, I don't know if that's any illustration of this. But sometimes we need to do what is right versus what is easiest, what is convenient, whatever else wants us to do. That's man's heart. Two examples. That's what we see here in chapter 18. What's God's heart like? If we were to expose God's heart, what would we find? What's he like? What's he want? And from this passage, this is my conclusion. What's, God, what's on God's heart? Us. What's on God's heart? His son in this passage. But also a kingdom. A kingdom. And who's involved in that kingdom? Us. We're part of God's kingdom. So in the next couple of minutes, what I want to do is try to help you to understand from this passage what the kingdom of God is about. Because we are part of this kingdom. And I was struck and reminded again throughout just looking at the book of John that what's on God's heart is His kingdom. The kingdom of God. And over and over again, that phrase is repeated in Scripture, the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at five W's and in a short time tell you what the kingdom of God is all about. First of all, let's look at who. So, if the kingdom of God is on God's heart, we know who it, this is all about. Well, it's real clear the kingdom of God is about Jesus. In fact, when Pilate asked him, are you a king? Ultimately, Jesus says, you have said correctly. I am king of the Jews. So, who is the kingdom about? First and foremost, it's about Jesus. But it's also about us. Because God wants us in His kingdom. This whole passage in 18, that's why Jesus came. That's why He died. So you and I can be part of His kingdom. That's the who. So if He's a king, what is He king over? When you think of the word king, sometimes we think of a kingdom, right? A physical, political entity. We often think of a nation, and some people think, oh, king, king of the Jews, that means king of Israel. But it goes beyond that. Think of king as somebody who sovereignly rules, reigns over something. And the question then is, what does he reign over? And we find in Scripture that he reigns over a political, not a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Look at what Jesus had to say. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is from another place. It's not originating from this world, but it comes from outside this world into it. 
So what is the kingdom of God? Where does God reign and rule? Well, one thing we know for certain, it's not political. It's not geographical. It's not originating in this world, but it's from outside. But into this world. This is the kingdom of God. It says that, if it were of this world, my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest by the Jews. Now, remember what had just happened at, at the early part of chapter 18? This one guy who was a follower of his, Peter, thought that Jesus' kingdom was a physical kingdom. And so what did he do? He gets up, slices off this guy's ears, and as a result of that, he gets an earful. But he was wrong because the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus was talking about, wasn't one of this earth. Otherwise, he'd get his followers to fight to save him. So who? It's about Jesus the king. What? Well, we find out what it isn't. But let's look then at what it is. And to answer this, let's look at the question, when? When does the kingdom of God come into existence. Interesting, when Jesus first started his ministry, what was one of the phrases he says? The kingdom of God is at hand. Some translation says the kingdom of God is near. And the Greek idea was the kingdom of God, it's now. So when Jesus came, he says the kingdom of God is now present. Yes, it was not from this world, but it's now in this world. It's present. It's here. It's now. John the Baptist went before and says, Repent, for it's coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting, look what Jesus had to say when he, when he was clearly asked by the Pharisees, When will the kingdom of God come? Look what Jesus said. Very clearly answers this about the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Meaning, the kingdom of God is not about following a lot of rules, regulations. It's not about even keeping the Ten Commandments. Though it's important to do that. But he's saying the kingdom of God is not about religious rituals. Nor will people say, Here it is. Or there it is. It's not physical in nature. Look what he goes on to say. Jesus writes, The kingdom of God is what? Within you. And I'm afraid sometimes we forget that this kingdom of God, it's now. You and I live in the kingdom of God. True, we live in this world, but it's also in a spiritual plane a kingdom of God, and you and I are part of it, and we live in it. Remember back in chapter 14, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, there's a counselor of the Holy Spirit. And it's great that I go back to the Father, because if I don't go, I'm not going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He goes on to say, but you know, when I go, I'm going to send the counselor of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not going to just be with you. Holy Spirit's going to be in you, in us. That's a kingdom of God. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, when we talk about the reign or the rule of Jesus, 
We're talking about the reign and rule of Jesus in our hearts. And that is the kingdom of God. I find that that's just an incredible understanding because sometimes we live too much in this world and we let the cares and concerns of this world bog us down. What does Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things, they're concerns. We need to pay attention to them. But that's not what life is all about. Kingdom of God. Where? Where is the kingdom of God? Jesus said, You are a king then, Pilate answered. Jesus said and answered, You are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to what I have to say and receives me as their king. The kingdom of God, where is it? It's in our hearts. It's where we are. It's wherever you go. So if you put your faith in Jesus and you've received him into your life, you're part of the kingdom of God. Where he reigns, that's the kingdom of God. Why? Why is this on God's heart? Well, because he loves you. And he loves me. And he'll do whatever is necessary to help you become part of his kingdom. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, you and I, that Jesus came and died. That's what we're reading here in John chapter 18. That God loves you and he loves me. So my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place but is here and now today. So if it is here and now today, if we put our faith in Jesus, how are we to continue to live our life? Oh, by keeping him on the throne of our lives. Romans 12 has a different illustration, but the same idea. Be a living sacrifice. Allow him to reign and rule in our life. So, what about your and my heart? Where are we today? Have you ever kind of read Scripture and then something kind of jumps out at you? I mean, I've read the book of Revelation several times. We've studied it. I've preached on it. But some, somehow, in the reading of it, I glanced over something and I wanted to kind of get it back into realization. Turn into Bibles to Revelation, chapter 1. It's at the end of your Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 6. Now, John, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, is writing from uh, Patmos. That's what it says here, that he's been kind of exiled there. And he says this, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you, from him who was, who is, who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, 
the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And notice what it says. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Now what's it say about us? Why were we saved? Why did Jesus go through the trial, the crucifixion, everything he went through? Because he loves you and me. He's trying to bring us together and make us a kingdom. Turn over to another passage in Revelation, to chapter 5. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now I was out there when um, all the little kids came on the Valley Church campus. We had last week, what, 380 plus kids. Huh? 84? And the previous week it was 370 plus that was a lot of kids. And I was looking at where they were from, and, and you know, I'm standing there, and I hear all kinds of different languages being spoken. That's kind of a picture of this, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it goes on to say, they sang a new song, and you have made them, here's that word again, you have made them to be a kingdom, a kingdom of God, and priests to serve our God, and it goes on to say, this kingdom in the future will come to be more just a spiritual kingdom, but also come to the earth in a physical way. And when that happens, what's it say? We will reign with them on the earth. So today, the kingdom of God, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom where God reigns in our hearts and rules in our lives. In the future, this kingdom, Revelation 20, will be in this earth. It will be physical. It will be present. Not just spiritually, but physically. For now, the kingdom of God, it's a spiritual kingdom, and you and I live in it today. The kingdom of God, it's not the church, though the church is part of it. The kingdom of God. The church isn't the kingdom kingdom is you and I. And because it is you and I, the kingdom of God exists. Not just when we're here on Sunday morning, but when you're out in the world. You are the kingdom of God. I am the kingdom of God. When I'm walking down the street, when you're interacting with a neighbor, when you're in school, when you're at work, when you're at play, that's the kingdom of God. My prayer is that we learn to live it out more and more. That I'd learn to live it out, not just on Sunday, but every day. Because that is the kingdom of God, God's rule in your and my life. The time has come, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, we've talked a little just broaching the topic of the kingdom of God.
But we thank you that you've called us to be in your kingdom. But Father, we so need your help to live it out. Help my brothers and sisters to do that. And even as we sing songs, help these songs to resonate in our lives and in our hearts. And help, it to re- help us to remember we are citizens and we are to live it out in this world. Thank you, Lord, again for your word and your message. Thank you for loving us so much that you died for us. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.